Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. Up on our site, The Ringer has just published their first ever fantasy football rankings. Our NFL experts, Danny Kelly, Robert Mays, Danny Heifetz, and more, rank and analyze the top 150 players in 2019 with printable and mobile cheat sheets to take with you wherever you're drafting. To check out our rankings and for more preseason coverage, listen to the Fantasy Football Podcast or head over to theringer.com. David, in the wake of two mass shootings last weekend, America's favorite astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson compared the rate of carnage to that of car accidents and the flu, only to be attacked by the band Smash Mouth on Twitter after he did it. (laughs) This is where we are. What I want to know is what other face-off between a famous TV scientist and a 90s punchline band would you like to see? Oh my god! Um, wait, is this the first time that Smash Mouth's weird Twitter account has made it onto the show? I think so. Yeah. If, if so, I'm glad we're finally discussing this important media development. <laughs> if I were booking this like WrestleMania showdown card of all scientists versus what '90s bands? Yeah. I mean, what is, uh, scientists? Should we okay. do like Doctor Oz versus Counting Crows <laughs> or something like that? Yes, Bill Nye, like Bill Nye, the science guy uh, versus like Third Eye Blind. Is that the, mm-hmm. is that the appropriate thing? Uh, the, the appropriate look. What would they be fighting about? I mean, that's what I want to know. It would have to be something about you know gravity and stepping off the ledge, my friend. <laughs> uh, Mr. Wizard versus uh, Sugar Ray. Who am I missing here? What is there? <laughs> is Mr. Wizard still around to, to to mix it up on Twitter? I don't know if he's alive, but in this hypothetical, we can we can definitely go with that. Yeah, yeah. You just want to fly? Well, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Don, Don Herbert, Mr. Wizard, uh, left this earth in 2007, by the way. <laughs> All right. So I can't put Carl Sagan on the card either? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We are the billions and billions and billions of Twitter fights of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. media consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Tons to get to this week, including LeBron James's former GM going on a fast break through the media to apologize to LeBron James. We've got the reinvention of Playboy, a really bad tweet from a New York Times editor, and a harrowing story from the world of Quentin Tarantino's box office returns. But David, I think we need to start with the twin acts of domestic terrorism over the weekend. One was in Dayton, Ohio, where a man named Connor Betts opened fire in the Oregon district there, killing nine. The other shooting took place at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, allegedly by Patrick Cruzius. He killed 21 people at the most recent count after publishing an online manifesto about the Hispanic invasion of Texas and quote unquote, needless to say there. Uh, I think we should start here, at least with the media angle of all this awfulness. Which is a question I saw raised a couple times in the wake of the shootings, which was, do we publish these kind of manifestos? Should the press quote from them? Yeah. Uh, Cruzius's, and again, this is at this point as we record this, his alleged manifesto, 2,300 words. It was called An Inconvenient Truth. I wonder what Al Gore thinks about his uh, mm. old documentary being used in such a way. Uh, he said, if we can get rid of enough people, then our way of life can be more sustainable. He referenced the shootings at the mosques in New Zealand, uh, said he supported the Christchurch shooter, and 
his manifesto and said this attack is response, as I said, to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. What do you think we should do about these things? I mean, I should say it feels sort of like we're jumping into this conversation midstream because many, many people have been having it for way longer than this podcast has existed. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I feel like. I feel like on some level it's more of a philosophical argument than it is a practical argument, right? I mean, I I, I think that um, you know my gut instinct is that is that uh, it's going to be out there one way or the other, and you know maybe there's something to be learned from quoting from it. But just I mean, it's, it's actually a, you know not totally dissimilar argument to a gun control argument, which is that um, you know just because it's, you know just the the people who want it aren't necessarily going to find it or the people who this is going to ne- adversely affect aren't ne- aren't necessarily going to get their hands on it if it's if it's you know not read on the air if it's not widely distributed um so uh, you know I, in in most instances you know I'm sort of a, a information nihilist and I think that you know just put it all out into the world and and it'll be fine, but or, or or what will happen will happen. But I but I do see the argument for for you know not putting it out there. I think that. I mean, the, I ar- the argument the- goes basically like this: that if you put it out there, that the next guy inevitably mm-hmm. will probably be a guy will see <laughs> this and write his own version and do and do a similar thing. Will be inspired by it in some way. Sure, that's the argument. And the counter argument I would say would be that this keeps happening and racist terror from white shooters keeps happening and that as a society we should try to understand what the hell is happening here and i don't i don't yeah. mean that in the sense of understand understand this guy and what can we do to help because who gives a fuck but just understand how we stop future attacks like this and how we identify people who are going to do stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And that just seems like a, that just seems like a gigantic public good. Um, that to me would outweigh whatever concerns you have about suppressing the information. I don't think anybody's agitating or arguing for a law, uh, against it. I mean, against distributing this stuff. And I think that is in some ways it's a, it's, um, and it's not a matter of taste, but it's, I think it's a matter of, uh, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a case by case basis, right? I mean, it makes, like I can understand and I appreciate uh, the decision made by you know outlets like CNN to not say the name, to not report the name of the of the terrorist in question, right? Does not to because there's some argument that that publicizing their their name was sort of like glorifying them, and and that will encourage other you know people who are addled in various ways to to follow that uh, follow follow in those footsteps. Um, I guess I guess going along those lines, I, I don't see any reason why you couldn't just say mainstream television outlets don't go like repeating, you know, probably shouldn't be like re- trumpeting, you know, the 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 pull quotes from the manifesto. Um, but if you want to find it, it's like readily available on whatever gov- government resource or or just you know some sort of drier print outlet than you know than the television option. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think in some ways it's it's going to be on the outlets. It's always going to be on the outlets to sort of police themselves. I I get the CNN thing about not not naming the guys, and you know I'm all for not doing the glamour shots treatment that the Boston Marathon bomber got from Rolling Stone back in the mm-hmm. day on the cover. That's obviously glorifying, glamorizing, et cetera, et cetera. But you know these are these are gigantic news events, 
And sure. if you're trying to imagine a hypothetical person deciding whether to do this, you know, the fact that CNN, at least in my drive in this morning, is live on the scene in El Paso 24-7 talking about nothing but this. And the fact that they just don't name the shooter. I mean, I'm not sure that would be enough of a discourager. And I just think most information should be free if this, you know, the manifesto thing is available somewhere online. I'd rather have it available where reputable news outlets are going, look at this racist thing. This is why this is why it's wrong. This is why these ideas are are evil. Um, I'd rather have it in that form annotated than just, oh, look what I found on the Internet. So the more that the more that it's attached to that, I think is better. And yeah, I just I Shane Bauer from Mother Jones tweeted this not publishing manifestos clearly isn't preventing mass shootings. And the performative, I'm not going to publish the manifesto, but let me tell you what I think about it. Take is annoying yeah. and unproductive. We should all have access to this material. I don't know. It all it all feels like it all feels like the press's version of thoughts and prayers to me. Like now, now this awful thing has happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twenty plus people are dead in El Paso. Nine more in Dayton. Now we will we will do this one sort of gesture. It's one thing. Uh, as as our kind of way of saying never again, but that that's not going to do it, you know. And and I don't know. It just feel it feels to me. I think it comes from a good place, but it feels to me mostly symbolic and performative, and and not something that's really going to make a difference. Well, I mean, but before, I mean, yeah, I, I think I largely I agree with you. I'm not sure that performative. I mean, I think it's okay to be performative performative in some ways and this is probably one that's for a greater good i don't think it's there's a lot of back padding going on although it might come across that way i i only i mean performative in the sense of like we think this is what we should be doing without really thinking very hard about whether this is going to make a difference or not you know it's sort of like this just everybody goes into this uh into modes and these kinds of things rather than rethinking the issues that's all i mean about it i i agree with that i'm not sure that it's a net negative or anything though the uh, the other big media story here is 8chan, which is the message board where this and two previous attacks have been announced. Mm-hmm. Those were the Christchurch attack and the one in Poway, California. Frederick Brennan, who started the message board in 2013, tells the New York Times, shut the site down. It's not doing the world any good. It's a complete negative to everybody except the users that are there. And you know what? It's a negative to them, too. They just don't realize it. Uh, one of the providers, Cloudflare, uh, said it was going to stop working with 8chan on Sunday night. Uh, the site went down at uh, 3 Eastern time. But this is, again, one of those things. It's an interesting idea in, in putting pressure on providers, right, to stop sort of doing these things is, you know, to stop, you know, working with sites like this is is something that's worked for other white supremacist sites in the past. Yeah. Um. And it's an interesting strategy, but this just feels like something that's going to, it's going to, it's going to be out there somewhere in the world, but I guess you make it harder for these things. The idea is you make it harder for people to find this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty simple. I think that it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not, it's always a little bit uncomfortable when people just kind of go after, uh, you know, a provider of, of any sort to take. Uh, to to see service to anybody, no matter who it is. I mean, it's it's it seems like you you know when it's a when a campaign is mounted, you you can't help but feel like that campaign could be mounted in the opposite or any a significantly different direction at some point in the future. Um, 
But this did seem like, I mean, as far as these things go, a fairly organic version of it. I mean, it was this is Cloudflare who had previously defended their right to host 8chan, um, kind of just realizing it was not, uh, it was, you know, well, it was either a PR, too much of a PR headache or that that they had, they had uh, you know, exceeded the bounds of whatever philosophy the the hosting site had to to keep them up. As recently um, as Sunday afternoon, defended it before making a different decision Sunday night. If I if I remember correctly, yeah. I mean, I think when they were when they took down Stormfront. I mean, this was the same company that was hosting Stormfront, and Stormfront has found it very difficult to to continue um, without them as the host because they couldn't really find anyone else. Now, Eight Chan, I don't think is going to have that issue, but certainly might be slower and might be less, you know, might might hurt the site in any number of other ways. But when they took down Stormfront, I think, I mean, the Daily Stormer, sorry, I think was the previous case. If I remember correctly, it was it, it came down to sort of not just a philosophical, I mean, it was largely philosophical, but there was also the issue of moderation. And, and I think that in that, you know, when, when terrible stuff was up, it didn't come down quick enough, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in some at some point you have to look at Cloudflare not as a moderator, but as you know, I mean, you you ask the question of how much they have to be aware of the stuff that they're hosting, and I think it's a fair I think it's fair to say that on Sunday when they when they were pressed that maybe they didn't maybe he didn't know fully what his site with this I mean what the site they were hosting had been had turned into or evolved slowly evolved into, uh, but it's been no secret that H I mean that 8chan has been you know, a Petri dish for a lot of this kind of stuff for a long time. It, it's If you visit the part, the kind of more sterile versions, of parts of the internet that, that that attract people, like the 8chan crowds, there's a sort of vibrant argument, you know, chicken and the egg argument about whether or not, similar to guns, similar to whatever else, that, that you know, the, these crazy people, uh, that, that, you know, eliminating access to these sites won't stop these crazy people from being crazy. And it's not the sites themselves. The sites are all ironic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, it's it's really hard. It's really hard to to buy that. And and Frederick Brennan, aka Hot Wheels in his heyday, uh, is a great example of someone who was you know fully in on the um, on the kind of nihilism of free speech argument and uh, and and you know consequences be damned and has since you know to, to whatever degree seen the light. Um, and he's not the first person in that in that situation to do it. The, the start of the creator 4chan uh, went through a similar kind of conversion at some point, which was the predecessor to 8chan. Anyway, long digression. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's it does seem silly to say take down the site, especially when it's like an open message board. To take down the site would make a big difference. But I mean, I think it's really hard to imagine that it. I mean, it's it's clear from the contents of the site that they are glorifying it, whether or not it's ironically not. Most people aren't getting the joke. If, if if the average news journalist isn't getting the joke, certainly a lot of these prospective killers aren't getting the joke. Terrorists aren't getting the joke. People are glorifying these acts, are are glorifying white supremacy, are creating memes and 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 continuing the legacy of these killers, these terrorists after their acts, um, whether or not you're joking. I think that a civilized society can agree that it's appropriate to condemn these jokes and to not, you know, if this were happening at your family reunion, you would kick your uncle out. And I think it's fine to say like that website doesn't need to be hosted by my web server. These shootings already have a political resonance in the 2020 campaign. And I like the point that the Washington Post Dave Weigel made in his newsletter, The Trailer. He writes, the El Paso shooting could be a defining moment in the Democratic primary and presidential race, not because the candidates are scrambling for an advantage, but because they're in agreement. The 2020 Democrats share the same agenda on gun control, and they've confidently called the president a racist 
and handed him the blame for white supremacist violence. For example, here is Beto O'Rourke, who is, of course, from El Paso, site of one of those shootings, talking about the president. Is there anything in your mind that the president can do now to make this any better? Uh, what do you think? Um, you know the shit he's been saying. He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I don't know, like, members of the press, what the fuck? Hold on a second. You know, I, 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 it's, it's, these, um, it's these questions that you know the answers to. I mean, connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country. Um, he's not tolerating racism. He's promoting racism. He's not tolerating violence. He's inciting racism and violence in this country. So, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know what kind of question that is. That's Beto being a press critic. Uh, interestingly, he sounds like a lot of people on Twitter criticizing uh, the New York Times or major papers for not labeling uh, Trump's rhetoric to be racist. Uh, Weigel goes on to note that uh, Elizabeth Warren had held back when reporters asked whether Trump himself was racist this weekend. She did not. So the shootings, David, had an interesting having had an interesting sort of effect on on causing Democrats to sort of go places they hadn't gone. Speaking of which. Trump also said uh, in his remarks about the shootings, God bless the memory of those who perished in Toledo as opposed to Dayton, Ohio. And as I was driving in, Tim Ryan, presidential candidate from Ohio, addressed those remarks on CNN. It's heartbreaking. I mean, it's just it's heartbreaking because he's he's showing a diminished capacity, uh, mental capacity to be able to lead. And that's what I see when I when I hear that. I mean, this is. This is an you could grab anybody on the streets of the United States and they would know Dayton and El Paso after the last 36 hours and to have the president of the United States. It just shows the level of disengagement. It, it, it's uh, indicative of what else he said during that press conference, how disconnected he is from what's happening uh, in the country today. I just I think he has a diminished mental capacity to be able to deal with the big problems that we have in the United States today. What'd you make of rolling that out? Uh, a phrase he was definitely determined to get in there a couple of times, diminished mental capacity. I mean, it did, that's not a thing that's going to stick with me after, I mean, through this whole thing. Um, I don't know if it's a decision to, I mean, politically to try to go a step further than his comp- the competition uh, in the primary. I don't know if it's, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think at this point, it's. I feel like that that argument has been, bandied about in so many of these circles for so long that I think at this point, to me, all, all, when I heard it, all it did was it seemed like a sort of excuse. I mean, it seems like this is this is actually, it does, it, it sort of um, gives some explanation to the fact that Donald Trump acts the way he does, you know? He's not a racist because he has a mental, he has diminished mental capacity. He's a racist because he's a racist. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I guess what's interesting to me is that a shooting, the shootings like we saw this weekend, are so just horrific that then you have the sort of effect of Democrats saying things they wouldn't normally say. Those are not, you know, the idea that Donald Trump is a racist or that Donald Trump is, uh, as, as Ryan says, there has some kind of diminished mental capacity or not odd things to see on Twitter here and there, uh, especially among writers. But it's interesting to me that this, this kind of event is just so, breathtaking that then candidates advance two steps up the board and go yeah. there. Um, you know, again, it's just like, I mean, it, this isn't the first time Donald Trump has made a mistake when he's talking, <laughs> when he's talking about the shooting. So, yeah, but I, th- I think that it's, I think that it's relevant in the same way that we've talked about 
you know, I th- talked about Biden recently, but and other candidates too. Um, how? And, and this this really does. I mean, this is this is a very minor point, but it, but but when you a minor gaffe, if it underscores a preconceived notion about you, then it it, it can it can have a lot of it can carry a lot of weight. And this is sure. just like the greatest preconceived notion about Donald Trump is that he doesn't you know give a fuck about these about situations like this that he's that he doesn't has no com- compassion and certainly uh has no no in, interest in engagement when it's uh you know the sort of very fine people he's championed before so i mean i think that i think that it's it, it in this case it's a it's a it's a you know two second meme but it you know there there is some there is some legitimacy to discussing it if democrats have been emboldened Republicans have struggled to respond to the shootings, according to another piece in the Washington Post. Uh, One rhetorical conceit we saw was to blame video games. Here is the president of the United States. Second, we must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace. It is too easy today for troubled youth to surround themselves with a culture that celebrates violence. We must stop or substantially reduce this, and it has to begin immediately. I thought we got in Tipper Gore from the <laughs> mid '90s back there for a second. Mm-hmm. Through some video games that we're going to yeah. talk. I thought we we're going to talk about hip hop there, and for a second, but uh, Trump stopped with video games. Tim Scott, Republican senator from South Carolina, who dealt with his own shooting at the Emanuel Church in Charleston in 2015, was on Face the Nation this weekend and defended the idea the much debased idea of thoughts and prayers. The good news for our community was that our community came together through prayer. A lot of folks say that prayers don't matter. Well, I will disagree with them vehemently because of prayer. Uh, the The nine family members forgave the shooter and brought unity into our state in a way that we have not seen in the history of the state, frankly. You see the kind of rhetorical sleight of hand there. You, of course, don't need to deny anybody the ability or opportunity to heal with prayer after a mass shooting. Yeah. Whatever works. But praying after the fact does not stop the mass shooting from happening in the first place. How like how wildly must one be grasping at the straw? I mean, how how far how just far gone do you have to be to be to be defending your thoughts and prayers tweets against the fact that those tweets have become have started to become ridiculed, justifiably ridiculed. Like, it's not just, no one's stopping you from tweeting your thoughts and prayers. It's just people are joking about it now because it's because they're pointing out just the, just, just the atomic level of, 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 of uselessness that those tweets have. No one's stopping you from tweeting these things, but you feel the need to defend the necessity of the tweets. I mean, come on, engage what, with the issue for it's a just second. Scrambling like up the higher second. ground, right? Some people yeah. would say we're not, we shouldn't pray after yeah. an event. Like, no, but nobody's saying that. All right, David, let's segue awkwardly to the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your nominees to at the press box pod, where they will be gratefully received. While we were busy with debate pods, David, the MLB trade deadline happened, and this is one thing I can safely say that you only engaged with in your duties as an art director, because I was sitting next to you during the MLB trade deadline. (laughs) Got a couple of jokes about that. We got one from Mark Feinsand, MLB.com reporter and MLB Network insider. He writes that when he reported that the Astros had traded Tyler White to the Dodgers, 
for a minor league pitcher named Andre Scrub. Andre Scrub. <laughs> his mentions were filled with a joke. Tyler White was literally traded for a scrub. <laughs> a scrub. That's good. Thanks to Mark for that one. That's a great social cue for our 1999 Music Week, for which, of which no scrubs uh, featured <laughs> very prominently. <laughs> nice plug there. Another recurring bit, David, happens when a player gets traded to the Oakland A's, the financially constrained franchise that plays in one of the crappiest stadiums in the world. Uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say, why I'm joining the Athletics. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's uh, a good Because one. the Reds told me I had to, thanks to uh, a guy named Samuel Evers. Uh, for that one. And can I tell you a story about Samuel Evers, David? Please. I was in New York last week to do those debate pods with you. And I'm on the subway. I'm on the four train. And this person comes up to me and says, are you Brian? And I said, yeah. And it was Samuel Evers. And he said, I recognized you by your voice. Yeah. On the four train in New York. And and there's two two things that are amazing about that. One is how flattering to yeah, be recognized amazing. in any capacity. Uh, number one. And number two, and more importantly, my wife was with me. What a moment in our marriage well, when I could I've... turn to her and say, did you hear that? <laughs> first of did all, you hear that? first of all, I'm glad she was there. I'm glad she got to share in that moment with you. Second of all, I'm I'm especially glad she was there because if she weren't, that would must mean you were just talking to random strangers or yelling out, just, just yelling words into the air on the train, <laughs> which I wouldn't put past you. Uh, I'm glad that there was someone there that you were talking to. Anyway, thanks to Sam for uh, making my day and then some. A couple of more jokes from the Democratic debates, David. Uh, one was about, remember Joe Biden trying to spit out the name of what he thought was a web ad- address and turned out to be a number you were supposed to text? Uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say, to paraphrase Biden saying, if you agree with me, go to, and then Biden spits out the nuclear code sequence. <laughs> thanks to Marcus Kratz for that one. That was quite a moment. Another one during the interminable playing of the national anthem that began both nights of the debates. Uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say which candidate will have the balls to take a knee thanks to Skirt Rambus. And I put that in there because I believe, David, we actually made that joke during the uh, during the <laughs> podcast afterwards. So we are guilty. If you imagine one of the Democratic candidates going the full Kaepernick like we did, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, before we talk about LeBron James and his former GM... Let's take a quick break. Today's episode is brought to you by Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to the newest show on the Ringer Network, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999. This is definitely a podcast you can't miss. Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99 is about a music festival that took place in upstate New York and became a social experiment. It was the third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism. But Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths behind the myths of the 1960s and the danger that nostalgia can engender. Along with Woodstock 99, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators you can't find anywhere else, like our rewatchable spinoff, The Rewatchables 1999. The Luminary app is free to download. In addition to the can't-miss originals, you can listen to thousands of podcasts, including this one. 
Whether you're into music, TV, and film, comedy, sports, or more, Luminary has the right show for you. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more only on Luminary. And get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash pressbox. After that, it's only $7.99 a month. That's luminary.link slash pressbox for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash pressbox. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. Let's start with LeBron James versus David Griffin. Uh, David Griffin, if you don't know, was the GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers when LeBron James and the Cavs won the 2016 NBA title. Griffin is now GM of the New Orleans Pelicans, and he sat for a profile with Jake Fisher of Sports Illustrated and made a few loose comments about his time in Cleveland uh, that made some news. On the weird franchise building you have to do when LeBron plays for your team, he said, Quote, everything we did was so inorganic and unsustainable and frankly not fun. I was miserable. Literally the moment we won the championship, I knew I was going to leave. He said of the stress of doing the job, the reason is LeBron is getting all the credit and none of the blame, and that's not fun for people. They don't like being part of that world. Mm. Of LeBron winning the title in 16, he said, there wasn't a lot else for him. I don't think he's the same animal anymore about winning. And he also said, I just totally lost my joy for the game. LeBron's camp told ESPN they were shocked at the comments. LeBron himself seemed to subtweet Griffin when he said, all right, all right, enough is enough. The throne has been played with too much, and I ain't for horseplay ether coming soon, along with a bunch of emoji. Uh, per ESPN, this is my, my favorite part of any one of these stories, Griffin and a person close to James spoke to each other after the SI story was published, dot, 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 and James's camp encouraged Griffin to clean, clear up his stance on the record. I almost said clean up. It would have been the same uh, <laughs> same effect. Clear up his stance on the record, sources said. This is, this is an amazing media transaction here. David Griffin gets a profile written about him. David Griffin expects said profile to be a happy thing, which, by the way, it was. This mm-hmm. is, the whole thing was about here's the guy rebuilding the uh, Pelicans and, and what he's been through in his life. Had some personal details about he and his wife trying to have children and all uh, lots of different things about that. <laughs> he says a couple of things about LeBron. <laughs> Obviously, LeBron or LeBron Inc. gets mad. Mm-hmm. And then he has to hustle out and clean up what he said. Did you appreciate this whole bit as much as I did? Because I just loved it. I just loved every second of it. It did become, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the sort of comedy uh, was was uh, was there. I mean, it was hilarious. There were because nothing that, was wrong here. No. N- nothing he said was was different than anything we know about LeBron. Well, no, no, no. And not, not just that. But, the, I mean, one of my favorite p- parts of the story was the sort of, uh, it's sometimes uh, subtle, it's sometimes not so subtle um, word that came bubbling up from media Twitter. Where they were, pe- people were saying or report, quote unquote, reporting secondhand that uh, David Griffin had been saying all of these things off the record for some time. So it'd be really weird to see him deny them outright. That was when like the media tour was going on. A lot of people who were kind of stretching the off the record now in this moment of necessity, you know, to, to, to point out that David Griffin's never been shy about this stuff. And I think that, I mean, there was actually some indication that he had, was a little bit difficult it was a little bit difficult to keep track of being on and off the record with david griffin more so than some people um and 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 there and you know i I saw some theory that maybe he was uh, a little bit too loose with that in this interview and certainly wasn't suspecting 
uh, are expecting this to be the outcome on the SIP. Certainly, the the Sports Illustrated piece. Um, yeah, certainly. If if you if I mean to to accept the sort of sad state of modern media for for thirty seconds, you can imagine a situation where he says these sort of things, sort of to curry favor, uh, to to you know have like a, some sort of sense of of engagement with whoever's covering him, and then the reporter, uh, but, sure, yeah, with the reporter, give the reporter some juicy stuff they can tell their friends, but they can't write. And I then, didn't but expect then, you were going to put it in the piece. Yeah, I didn't, but the, and then in this piece in particular, you know, you you this this I mean again. Uh, stipulating this is, you know, this is an evil, uh, a sad media world that we're living in, that he go to the piece just, I mean, you go to the SI or whatever outlet just to say, hey, we want to pitch you this puff piece on David Griffin. And in the process of, you know, kind of getting the SI to write exactly what you have to write, you you kind of, you know, spill all this tea about LeBron James. And then the SI people are just like, you know, let's just put it in. That's our, that's the get, you know? Of course. uh, Jake Jake Fisher isn't stupid. I don't know him at all, but of course it's going to be... I'm doing a piece on some guy named David Griffin, and he tells me interesting stuff about LeBron James. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to pick? Interesting stuff about LeBron James or interesting stuff about David Griffin? I, I, I picked the LeBron James one. Yeah. I know I know in NBA Twitter, David Griffin is a big deal, but let, let's be serious here. Uh, Griffin hustled over to the ESPN show The Jump, which is the NBA show of record, uh, to defend himself or, or at least clear things up, clean things up, and he said this. When I was speaking about being uncomfortable and, quote, being miserable, it was my inability to deal with that media scrutiny. It wasn't the man himself. It was everything that came with a team led by LeBron James. Had nothing to do with being miserable with LeBron. We had and have a very positive relationship. So that was one issue. I wasn't miserable with LeBron. I was just personally miserable. (laughs) I was... Well, it's LeBron, kind of great. LeBron was the biggest figure in the franchise, but he didn't cause any of my misery. It was all self-inflicted. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I And I said, by the way, let's just let this clip run because I want you to hear more, one more bite of Griffin talking about the SIPs. The other thing that bothered me the most, and frankly, none of this really matters other than the fact that it's inherently wrong. The story was all designed <laughs> to be about the Pelicans and how our past and how everything we had learned through our failings, we were going to apply to how we want to build this Pelican's family. And the writer got a great deal of information from many, many people in the organization about our team and what we were trying to do. So I was disappointed that the story really became about me and a sensationalized version of quotes that were taken totally out of context. And and quite frankly, none of the information was new information I've said this many times in media while working in media for the last two years prior to coming back. So I was just disappointed with the way everything got presented. None of this matters other than it was inherently wrong. Seems seems like a seems like that part would matter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that I think that with the sort of the most interesting part about this um he could have just put out a statement like that really like like I did say those things or many of those things that does not the, the outcome does not reflect my feelings about LeBron James or my time with the Cavaliers. And I apologize for the misconstrued, you know, for the for that for the misconception. Um, but he didn't. He went on the jump, like you said, the the platform of all uh, um, real time NBA corrections, I guess. And uh, and 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 did so apparently at the behest of someone in LeBron's camp. And I think that that's sort of most int- intriguing and most s- sort of questionable, right? That I mean, you would want to make it right, and you'd want to make it right to somebody. If you if you if you maligned, if I if I 
said something bad about you and uh, someone put the audio of it on Twitter. This would be a great controversy, by the way, Brian. Um, <laughs> and, you, and you were just like... That'd be big. And I apologize to you and you were like, well, that's great, but you have to apologize on Twitter. Because, you know, I would like, I, I can understand the logic there and you do it, you, you kind of have to do what the aggrieved person says if you want to make it right in some ways. But at the same time, these are, these are business competitors, right? I mean, these are, these are two people who, I mean, if you want to just assume LeBron has a significant amount of control over the Lakers, you, you know, do it. But these are, these are representatives of two teams that just made a massive trade in the NBA, right? And now one of them has leverage over the other one. Enough leverage to make someone go on television and, and publicly apologize. Well, the, you know, I mean, I, yeah, no. And I'd say two things. One is it just it, it's like the point he was making when he said those things was that LeBron was so powerful within the Cleveland franchise that it made my life miserable. Mm-hmm. He was so powerful that it affected everything in these in these crazy ways. Now what he's doing by coming forward and, and, and cleaning up what he said is saying LeBron is so powerful than the NBA that it makes my life miserable even when I say like things to a Sports Illustrated writer. It's the same point. Yeah. <laughs> it's just being made in two different ways. The point at the end of the day is LeBron is all-powerful. Well, listen, I think that that's the point. I mean, I think that that's what, for, from from the the point of view of LeBron's camp, I don't think they care. That, I mean, I think at this point, especially, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't, I don't think that. Mm-hmm. Are we this, sure? Like, like you said, this stuff has been out there. I think they're smart enough to know that it's not about the content, it's about the perception. Right. And if they were and if and if, you know, there's a difference between. There's a difference between like talking shit about your buddy when you're sitting together in a bar and then and and then, you know, saying it with a straight face to like a girl he's trying to date. Right. And this was whatever the meta, whatever metaphor I'm trying to pull here. This was the latter. <laughs> I was about to say, I want let, to let's I, cast the roles of who's the who's the girl he's trying to date. I here. think I think that what that what David Griffin said in explanation, if not, you know, the contents are, are super wishy washy, whatever else. But the explanation, I think, was right. I mean, it was just like, yeah, I've said this stuff before. It's just the way it was framed. And I think. I think on the one hand, LeBron's camp was just like as long as the as long as the narrative that continues to this point is not that LeBron is a terrible coworker or you know a bad boss or whatever, um, then then that can continue. But then also you know if you want to go down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole, I think what what I was saying before, I mean maybe it's more advantageous to have a, a, a cowed David Griffin working at another team in the league than it is to you know actually like get rid of the guy. Here's what here's here's what I don't like. You can go on the jump and say, well, you know, here, here's, here's what I really feel about LeBron. Here's yeah. what I meant to say. It is taking an additional step to attack the writer and accuse him of sensationalizing this and taking your stuff out of context. That is, a, that is an additional step. And I don't know that public figures realize it when they're doing it. Yeah. Because they're so desperate to put forward whatever PR thing they want to put forward that they don't realize you're attacking somebody else's reputation here. Mm-hmm. And you can do one without the other. Now, there may be some case where you truly feel like that, but that is the stock answer whenever you're unhappy with the way a story comes out is to say this is this was sensationalized and taken out of context. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 you know the power imbalance is so severe in those in mo- almost all of those totally. situations. Totally. And and by the way, I didn't see this episode of the Jump, but I I would have lo- if if this had been my dream show, we would have had Jake Fisher on for five minutes after this. Why don't you tell us what you think? Yeah. You know this. The you know you you tell us, and I and I yeah, as of yesterday anyway, he'd been pretty quiet on Twitter about the whole thing. But you know, I always loved that, and and I think this was you know Griffin here is giving gave an actually pretty full explanation 
of what he meant. But to me, whenever I hear whenever I hear a public figure say my quotes were taken out of context, the next question should be, what is the context? What was the context? You tell right. us. Because that's not an answer. Also, by one another funny thing is that Griffin in the piece bashed Phoenix's ownership. He used to work at uh, with the Suns. I, I didn't hear him come on and clean up those comments. And you know why? Because nobody cares about the Suns. Yeah. Nobody cares. There's nothing to clean up. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a, uh, the, sun, we, the Suns bashing, that's okay. That that part, uh, Jake Fisher got in the correct context and didn't sensationalize. So thanks for that very much. <laughs> Department of Redesigns, David, or Reboots, maybe. I enjoyed a piece in the New York Times by my old co-worker Jessica Bennett about the re-re-reinvention of Playboy magazine. Playboy is one of those outlets uh, that has been rebooted throughout our entire lives. There's never been a part of our life where Playboy wasn't being reconceived. And Bennett says the newest version, at least according to the people who run it, is a newer, woker, more inclusive Playboy. Bennett writes that members of the staff use terms like intersectionality, sex positivity, privileging, and lived experience to describe their editorial vision. Which leads me to the line, I just buy it for the intersectionality. It's <laughs> <laughs> my new joke. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things you might not know, David. Playboy is now a quarterly. I'm not sure I knew that. Mm. It's ad-free. Uh, its audience is a couple hundred thousand, according to the people who run it, so round down. Uh, the nudity was briefly gone, but now it's back. The Playboy bunnies, Bennett writes, are paid as freelancers and often continue, continue to represent Playboy at public events. The company said it was working to provide them with health care benefits. Which, which leads me to think that every media story is the same at the end of the day. It's all about benefits. <laughs> uh, Playboy, according to its chief executive, is becoming a goop-like brand. That was his wording. Um, wow. It's working to expand into skincare, sex toys, sexual wellness, and get ready, cannabis. All because right. it, when, when, when your brand is, when you're just totally done as a thing that people actually consume, you become like a cannabis brand. Right. That's that's Willie Nelson at this point. You know, that's mm-hmm. like the Den- Dennis Hopper in some in some celestial <laughs> way is probably a cannabis brand at this point. Yes, I'm sure that's, that's it. true. That's the moment. Anyway, that's what I thought was uh, that was I thought that was pretty good. Well, I'll be excited to see this uh, this uh, evolution, this rebranding take place. Uh, debate cleanup, David. Last week, we talked about the second round of the Democratic debates. A couple of things we didn't get to. One is the obvious question is when are people going to start dropping out? And in the New York Times, Sydney Ember and Katie Gluck say, not anytime soon. And here are the reasons. One is the Iowa State Fair is about to start. Nice. <laughs> State fairs are, are important mainly during political campaigns. And more than 20 candidates, also Texas OU, by the way, but I'm glad to throw that in there. More than 20 candidates are scheduled to attend the State Fair. Even Seth Moulton, congressman from Massachusetts who didn't make either round of, de- of the debates, has a speech plan there. 22 candidates are also going to the Iowa Democratic Wing Ding, which is a <laughs> dinner that costs you $35 to attend. Uh, Michael Avenatti was at last year's Wing Ding to tell you how fast history moves. Wait, was the, uh, is the Wing Ding, is that $35 for unlimited wings too? So, so this is the thing. We explain <laughs> everything in the newspaper. You know, Albert yeah. Einstein, comma, a favorite science, a uh, famous scientist, comma. Yes. We we didn't we didn't explain the wing ding, <laughs> and I went looking everywhere, and everyone seemed to yeah. everyone seemed to just just think that we all know what the wing ding is. I was looking into this for like a good five ten minutes, and I could not confirm that it's a wing dinner or or what exactly it is. The wing ding, the steak fry, which is also happening in Des Moines <laughs> in September, it's pretty self explanatory. 
Hopefully, there was yeah. a fish fry right in South. Didn't we just do the fish fry in South Carolina? Sure. Which was a famous thing, but the wing ding. So anyway, this this is keeping it. The wing ding is keeping people in the campaign. The big problem for these people, David, in terms of dropping out is money. Uh, Moulton, Tim Ryan, John Hickenlooper, and Bill de Blasio, the Times reports, each have less than a million dollars of cash on hand. Mm-hmm. They also have until August 28th uh, to meet the threshold to qualify the, for the September debates. And the Times thinks that only about 10 to 12 Democrats are going to make it. So what you're saying is they're all going to stay in the race because they want to they want to show up to the Iowa State Fair. Well, they made a commitment to show up to the Iowa State Fair. All right. Um, I can understand that commitment. I went to the Cecil, Cecil County, uh, Maryland, Cecil County. I'm not sure which one. Maybe somebody from Cecil or Cecil County can drop in and let us know. I, just, I, went to the, I prefer Cecil. Obviously, close to your heart, but go ahead. I just always say, I just saw it written down. No one ever said Cecil or Cecil County. But I, saw, I went to their state fair a couple of weeks ago. It was a grand time. I saw the biggest cattle I've ever seen in my life. And uh, I can understand the allure for work or play going to the Iowa State Fair. I wish I could go. There wasn't a man in red, white, and blue standing out front going, welcome to the Cecil County <laughs> Fair. Yeah, Tim Ryan was actually there. In case that, That's what you're asking. <laughs> that was, that I, didn't re- <laughs> I didn't realize it until he was getting arrested. So. Yeah. Uh, I think I think it'd be John Delaney, by the way. Isn't he the Marylander among our... Oh, you're uh, right. You're right. Among our presidential candidates. Just cleaning up for you there. Bad tweet of the week, David. You and I shrug off a lot of criticism of the New York Times, but this one back... On July 31st, from Jonathan Wiseman, who is the paper's deputy Washington editor. Whoa. He was trying to get into a debate about Claire McCaskill's punditry, which we should maybe talk about at some other time, about what Midwest voters want. Uh, and Wiseman fired off this tweet saying Rashida Tlaib and Elon Omar are from the Midwest is like saying Lloyd Doggett or John is from Texas or John Lewis is from the Deep South. Come on. Um, yeah, yeah. With a lot of bad tweets, you can at least understand where we were going. Yeah, and how the uh, train got off the tracks. I really don't understand that one. Once this tweet was explained to me, and not this was uh, Jonathan Weissman's tweet nor his follow ups did any uh, did it did not explain it at all. Once I figured out eventually what he was trying to say, the the, t- the I mean I, I I vaguely get it. I mean, as someone who's like from the South, but never lived in outside of a big city in my childhood, I, I get vaguely what he was kind of getting at here. But this is not the kind of thing that you can be inarticulate about. right? This is not the kind of like offhanded. This 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 is not the sort of like offhanded Twitter sarcasm that that can just skate by, especially not when you're Jonathan Wiseman, editor for The New York Times. This is just like, I mean, wow, wow. You got to hear these things. Maybe you should just read your tweets out loud before you press send because this is that's like, I mean, it just sounds so. I mean, it's just terrible. I I just yeah, and and I, so the point the point he was trying to make is that from big cities, if you're from big cities in the region, you're not really from the region. Mm-hmm. That's that was the that was the not totally offensive point he was trying he was trying to get across but it came off it actually is offensive though i mean i don't don't even understand i don't i don't get it at all no i know i mean it's 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 a many people take offense to it even if he said it if he if he said it articulately um as inarticulately as he as he said it it came off really offensive and then there's the sort of not even subtext but the meta text of him iding 
these Congress people in the exact same way that President Trump has when Trump's explicitly explicit intention was to uh, do racial dog whistles. Mm-hmm. Um, so when <laughs> so when you're picking the same the same targets and you're like, well, they're not really from where they say they are. Wink, wink. I mean, Jesus, it's just so yeah. ridiculous. I, I thought Lloyd Doggett being on the list, Lloyd Doggett, whose office I used to intern in when I was in college, <laughs> really saved this from being a, a professional catastrophe <laughs> for him. Because otherwise, you know, it's like, why are we only targeting people That's of color good. here? I just didn't get it at all. Uh, Department of Box Office, David. Does anything make us dumber than writing about movie box office numbers? If you said writing know. about sports TV ratings, you're correct, but we're talking about box office here. I saw the headline all over the place a couple of weeks ago. Once upon a time in Hollywood is Quentin Tarantino's biggest box office opening of his career. Okay. Mm-hmm. The biggest open. Seems like an uncontroversial headline. Here, here it is. Once upon a time made about $40.35 million in its opening weekend versus Inglorious Bastards back in 2009, which made $38 million. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, there are two reasons why spreading this little Ritz cracker of a tweet is really dumb. One is that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood cost more than $90 million to make. And Glorious Bastards cost $70 million. So if I told you two movies made about the same amount of money, <laughs> but one was $20 million cheaper to make, would, wouldn't that be a more significant fact rather than this is the biggest <laughs> opening of QT's career? That would, that would seemingly yes. be important. Yes. Here's the other thing. If we plug the figures into ye old Bureau of Labor Statistics <laughs> Inflation Calculator, which is the only sane way to think about box office. Glorious Bastards, $38 million back in 2009 becomes $45 million, which is more than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So pure ignorance got us to this place. And again, is, it, is this a big deal? No, it's not. But there's already so much dumb stuff in the world. And whenever I see extra dumb put into the world and in smart people or smartish websites retweeting extra dumb, there's no point to it other than you're just doing publicity for the studio or for the filmmaker, right? It doesn't matter. If, the, if, if you really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's great. It doesn't matter how much money it makes. It really doesn't. It certainly doesn't matter if it's like two million more than some other Quentin Tarantino movie, which you also probably liked. I just, I just, you know. Yeah, I mean, and the other option, I mean, the other, the other explanation, and they're not disconnected, is that you're just like fishing for engagement, right? And the tweet, yes, this is the biggest. That is what the, it is. So it does. So if you're, you're, and you're accidentally, you're fishing for engagement, and then thereby accidentally doing PR for the movie. But the, but the fishing for engagement is, I mean, geez, that's what. I mean, like, we wait, do it, huh? We do it. Everybody does it. But like, way to way to typify everybody's like, like you know, complaints about the mainstream media or whatever in the modern era that they just, they care more about clicks than they do about facts. I mean, if you're really yeah. just if you're if you're just walking just straight into that that cliche, then like, well, like have fun Be- because it's a more exciting story yeah. to say that this was the biggest opening rather than this, you know, made about as much. In fact, perhaps a little less than another one of his movies. But it's again, it's, again, it's just. It's just, it's a Monday, right? And and everybody's like, it's so much more exciting to say this is the biggest than it is to tell, actually say what happened. All right, time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline no. where we never sensationalize anything. Uh, David, by the way, we have so many of these stacked up in our shared Google Doc that we may need to do a super cut one of these days. I'm telling you, we got to do, we should do, we should do a, a game show. We should invite some other people in Okay, and oh, yeah. do a strain pun headline game show, and we'll we can we'll bank it for like Thanksgiving week. 
I'm going to get one of those long, slender mics like uh, Bob Barker used to use. Yeah, Drew Drew Carey still uses that mic, I think. Oh, that's right. Okay, the Drew Carey currently uses, and we're gonna do it. But we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna burn them off one by one here on this show. Uh, and I got one for you, and this is so special it had to be a standalone. It's a Guardian column from Zoe Williams, well-known British columnist. Okay. And the subhead of the column is the magical wonder of dried chickpeas. What? The mag. <laughs> I'll repeat. The magical wonder of dried chickpeas. And this is exactly what it is. It's a kind of semi-comic love letter to dried chickpeas. Like the kind, like, like, like we have them in my house. Like you get a bag of dried chickpeas, like you get a bag of chips. Yes. There's not, these are not, these don't have magic properties like in a, like in a fairy tale or anything. These are just regular chickpeas. What is the Guardian strain pun headline? (laughs) Wait, what? All I have is the say say the subtitle again. The magical wonder of dried chickpeas. <laughs> and what do you do with chickpeas? Is it just Middle Eastern food? Mediterranean food? A chickpea is a legume. Oh no. So it's a legume pun is what I'm looking for? That's right. And it's about how wonderful these chickpeas are? Uh-huh. Well, it's just Doom, it's just kind of a freestanding Doom, funny. Doom room. <laughs> Yeah, legume with a view. Yeah, uh, yeah, legume with a view would be a really good one. Um, panic, panic, legume. <laughs> it's a letter. Well, how how would you <laughs> now, how would you start one. a letter? Oh, Chris is saying to legume it may concern. A legume yeah. it may concern. <laughs> Holy legume shit! Legume it may Who concern the one? magical wonder of dried chickpeas. Holy crap! Congrats to the Guardian. That was, I'm not sure what to say about that. All right. For going there. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research from Chris Almeida. Production from Jim Cunningham. More lukewarm takes about the media on Friday. See you then. See you later. Welcome to the Cecil County Fair. Uh, yeah, you just want to fly? Well, I'm sorry. Sex toys. What? And again, is it is this a big deal? No, it's not. What? But what? There's already so much dumb stuff in there. Sure. And whenever I see extra dumb sex toys put into the world, what? And in smart people or smartish websites retweeting extra dumb, there's no point to it. Well, that's great, but you have to apologize on Twitter. Okay. Okay. <laughs>